Hello, and welcome to the RI Science Podcast. In 1950, Bruno Pontecorvo, one of Britain's brightest atomic physicists, disappeared without trace. He resurfaced six years later in the USSR. This month, Frank Close exposes the truth of Pontecorvo's life behind the Iron Curtain and reveals why he vanished so suddenly. Thanks. Well, Half-Life, welcome to the launch of this, the UK edition without the hyphen, and the American edition has the hyphen, so there are even two halves to Half-Life in this. The title Half-Life, Graham has almost alluded to, um, halfway through Pontecorvo's life was when he moved, fled, defected, whatever the word is, from Britain, Harwell, where he was working, to the Soviet Union, where he spent the second half of his life. And so chronologically, his life was divided into two halves. He was also two separate people. There was the physicist, there was the enigma. And the title of the book, Physicist or Spy, lots of people have already asked, shouldn't there be a question mark after that? And I say, or can be inclusive or exclusive. You have to decide. This is full of enigmas. If you believed the, uh, the press of the time, then he had the secret of the H-bomb. He was just like Klaus Fuchs. He chose his uh, friends and collaborators rather poorly because Klaus Fuchs was working at Harwell with him until a few months before Pontecorvo disappeared. In fact, it's exactly 65 years ago last weekend that Fuchs was convicted for spying. Um, Pontecorvo had the secret of the H-bomb. Well, don't believe everything you read in the papers, but believe everything that I tell you tonight. So the two halves to his life, as I said, the chronological two halves, it was 1950... Halfway through his life. He was born in 1913. He died in 1993. And I could have told one of two stories about him. One is his life as the physicist, which was his overt life. How he became already a great scientist by the time that he defected. Contrary to the spin that was put out by the government after he went. And I'll tell you about that. And then in the second half of his life, how his time in the Soviet Union restricted his work. I'm sure that he would have been a candidate for at least one Nobel Prize had he not been in the Soviet Union, and we'll see why I say that later. The other half, of course, is the covert enigma, the Bruno Pontecorvo, who, for the second half of his life, became Bruno Maximovich Pontecorvo. And as I'm a physicist, when I started doing this about three years ago, that was the story that I had planned to tell. I hadn't anticipated that I would get diverted by a letter. And I don't know how many people have received a letter like this from the House of Lords, written on very nice notepaper in handwriting, saying, Dear Frank, did MI5 get back to you after I forwarded them your letter? <laughs> to which the answer was, yes, they did. Because this arrived in my pigeonhole in college, and uh, all anonymous, no return address or anything like that there, there was a postcode, so you could work out exactly where they are. Um, and the bottom line of this was that after some pressure, a file that had been lost, maybe we should put quotes around that, was found. Maybe we should put quotes around that. And it was the result of finding that file that suddenly a lot of things started falling into place and put me on quite a different quest. And so I've ended up starting this book as a physicist, and now I'm finding it is in the history section of Blackwell's in Oxford, um, and I'm being described as a historian of the Cold War, which is an interesting thing to do late in one's life. 
Um, but what MI5 had on Ponte Corvo, we will see. In fact, very little. Um, what did the FBI have on Ponte Corvo? Well, you can go and see their files, and there it is. <laughs> it's quite interesting, you won't be able to read this, but the great irony, down at the bottom right, it says, all information herein is unclassified. <laughs> so, uh, let's start the first half by telling the first half of his physics life. And my game here is to give you a feeling of why he was significant by the time he defected. Because, as I said, we will see that the British government's approach was to try to downplay his significance. So, who was he? What did he do? And why was his defection something that was really important? Well, he was born in 1913, the same year that Bohr's model of the nuclear atom was invented. This picture was taken in 1919, which was the year when uh, Rutherford discovered the atomic nucleus and, and the proton. And in 1932, the same year that the neutron was discovered, Bruno went to Rome and started to work with Fermi. And they were working together using neutrons. And neutrons were the tool that Bruno became the world expert in and with which he made some great discoveries, which turned out, for good or ill, to frame the future of his life. So let's just give a quick recap of what then happened. And then I will look at each of these in turn. So in 1934, in Rome, by accident in part, he stumbled upon the key to nuclear power. In, for those of you who know the jargon, he discovered what's called the, the slow neutron trick. In 1938, he had finished uh, in, uh, in Rome, I mean, the, the growth of fascism in Europe, uh, Mussolini in Italy, uh, Pontecorvo himself came from a Jewish family. Um, he went to Paris, where he worked with Joliot Curie. Joliot Curie uh, and Irene Curie had just won the Nobel Prize for physics. And fission was discovered in Germany, and Joliot Curie in Paris developed fission, and Pontecorvo was there with them while they did that. It was his time in Paris, a very exciting place to be at that time. It was perhaps the one place in Europe that had a democratically elected socialist-slash-communist government. And with the civil war going on in Spain, where you had to say, are you for fascism or are you for anti-fascism? Uh, that was a vibrant place, and it was during his three years there that he discovered communism, but kept it quiet. 1940 in Paris, when the Nazis invaded, he escaped finally uh, going to the United States, where in 1942, he developed nuclear physics and applied it to oil prospecting. Now, of the things that you were expecting to hear about tonight, I'm sure you didn't expect, I'd say, nuclear physics for oil prospecting. But, indeed, he did. And if you can find oil shales by using nuclear physics, you can find uranium by using nuclear physics. And, indeed, from 43 to 48, he was part of the Manhattan Project, on the Anglo-Canadian uh, part of the project building a nuclear reactor in Canada, and his nuclear physics techniques were used to prospect for uranium, which, of course, was the raw material for both nuclear reactors and for the atomic bomb. After the war, he stayed there until 48, and then from 49, he came to Harwell, and he probably would have stayed there the rest of his life had he not, in 1950, for reasons to be discussed, disappeared to the Soviet Union. So let's just look at these things to flesh them out, because they'll become important for us later. 1934 in Rome, 
the discovery of the, uh, the slow neutron trick was made by what was called the Via Panisperna boys. Via Panisperna is the street in Rome where the, nuclear, where the physics institute was, and Enrico Fermi was the leader. And the picture on the left is the iconic image, which you probably have seen in, in books over the years, of the boys, D'Agostino, Segrea, Maldi, Rossetti and Fermi, but not Ponticorvo. Ponticorvo was the youngest member of the group, and he took the photograph. Then he moved to Paris, and during his time at Paris, two significant things. One, he was present uh, as the developments of nuclear fission and the steps towards uh, confirming a chain reaction using heavy water was made in his presence with uh, Joliot-Curie. But I think for our story tonight, perhaps more interesting is that he became an expert in what's called nuclear isomers. What they are doesn't need concern us, other than to take away the following thing. At that time, nuclear physics was still a very small field, and everybody knew each other. And in the Soviet Union, in Moscow, um, Igor Kurchatov was also an expert in nuclear isomers. And Kurchatov cited Pontecorvo's papers and vice versa. They knew each other professionally. And the message, of course, is to bear in mind, by 1943, Kurchatov was essentially the Soviet Union's analogue of Oppenheimer. He was leading the atomic bomb project in the Soviet Union. So historically, professionally, it was clear that Kurchatov and Pontecorvo knew each other. 1940, the Nazis invaded. Pontecorvo's wife and two-year-old son escaped to the south of France on a train. Pontecorvo, his brother, a cousin, and a friend escaped literally the day that the Nazis invaded by bicycle and uh, made their way to the south of France. I won't tell this story tonight, but you can imagine the mayhem the Nazis having invaded, the roads clogged with everybody trying to, to get out, and Pontecorvo and friends on their bicycles. And he managed to send this postcard to Marianne, who was already in Toulouse in the south of France. And to me, the astounding thing is the postal services were still working that this thing got through. Uh, but that's a story that could make a Hollywood drama, or if you read it in the book, uh, but it's not for tonight. I just wanted to move on to show you that his ideas as an oil prospector, which is what his next stage was, by the time he moved to Canada, here is one of the maps of uh, the radioactivity uh, in an area of Canada. His techniques were used in Canada during the, the war for finding uranium. Which now moves us a bit to the interesting things, because if it was the case that he was ever involved in espionage, in passing secrets, then it was during this period, uh, at, initially at Montreal and at Chalk River, between 1943 and 48. So that was his time in Canada, and then he moved to Harwell. And in Harwell, he lived on the Atomic Estate, which is about five minutes' walk from my house in Abingdon. He lived there with his wife, Marianne, and by then, his eldest son, Gilles, was 12, and his two, he now had two younger sons, Tito and Antonio. And here we come to the first great irony in my mind, and it's this, that he had hidden very successfully the fact that he was a communist, or even had any interest in communism. Um, MI5 found it very difficult to pin down proof that he had been involved in communist activities at all. Now, there was no crime in being a communist in 1950, except that, of course, McCarthyism was growing in the States and beginning, perhaps, to spill over here into the UK. So it was quite wise, perhaps, for him to keep his head down. 
But with a son that he'd named Tito, you thought, you know, <laughs> that you might have noticed something. But anyway, that is one of the many ironies that I found in, in this tale, that he could hardly have advertised his interests more than he did, but nobody sort of noticed the fact. Then, for some reason, which we will see uh, later, he and the family disappeared. They went on a holiday, which left... They left Abingdon by car on the 24th of July, 1950, for a six-week holiday in Italy, and instead of coming back, they disappeared off the face of the earth, not reappearing for another five years in the Soviet Union. And in the course of doing so, um, I gave a talk last night at Abingdon School and was able to reveal to them, as they say, that they left owing Abingdon School 14 pounds, four shillings and sevenpence, unpaid. And in those days, that was real money. The, the fees for a term were 12 pounds. So uh, the fees had not been paid. See, I had a secret thing. I just wondered, could it possibly be that when he went to the Soviet Union, he didn't realise it was going to be a one-way trip? I mean, it's all obvious to us today. But back then, you know, maybe he was going there to have a look at this new facility, Dubna, which was secret, but he'd been told about it. The biggest machine in Europe. This is before CERN at this stage. And then uh, probably had plans for Gilles to stay as a boarder at school in Abingdon while they all lived out there. Um, so that's why I started looking around the records. Um, the answer seemed to be no. Was he kidnapped by the Soviets? Well, that's for you to think about. So let's now look at what happened to his half-life as a physicist after arriving in the Soviet Union. And you'll then begin to get a sense of this was not one of the smartest decisions that he made. Because the question is, why was it that Pontecorvo, whose work really was tremendous, that he could have been recognised as one of the great physicists of the 20th century? In fact, Ugo Amaldi made a very cogent remark, which I included in the book. He said, how many physicists have been experimentalists and theorists at Nobel level? Fermi, Rutherford, Pontecorvo. He put him in that level. And I think that there's some justification for that. And he would certainly have won a Nobel Prize had he not been in the Soviet Union. So let me just amplify this. He's known by many as Mr. Neutrino. And uh, neutrinos are these ghostly particles that are produced in the sun, among other places, or in nuclear reactors, stream through us without us being aware of them, postulated uh, back in 1930 or so by Wolfgang Pauli. And he was so concerned that you would never be able to detect the thing he wagered a case of champagne to the effect that nobody would ever know the neutrino was there. And it wasn't until 1956 that they were discovered and Pauli paid up, but not to Pontecorvo, as we shall see. So how do you go and look for neutrinos? Well, if it's very hard for a neutrino to reveal itself, you need a lot of them. And the first idea was, what about an atomic bomb explosion? That theoretically should produce lots of neutrinos, which is indeed true. But you can imagine, if you want to put a detector a few metres away from an atomic bomb explosion, it's hard to record the data. And as Fermi pointed out, it's even harder to repeat the experiment. So then somebody had the bright idea of using a nuclear reactor as a controlled source of large fluxes of neutrinos. And indeed, that was the route that uh, Cowan and Rhinus followed in the United States in a programme that they called, imaginatively, Project Poltergeist. If you're looking for a ghost, call it Poltergeist. And uh, they discovered the neutrino in 1956 uh, by, by, using, by using that technique. 
So, where does Ponte Corvo fit into this? Well, he was a student of Enrico Fermi, who had been very interested in neutrinos back in the 1930s. So, this was the sort of thing that I can see how Ponte Corvo had neutrinos in his mind. And it is now established, I've established, that he was himself thinking about ways of detecting neutrinos by using a nuclear reactor. In 1951, I've now managed to access the logbooks that Ponte Corvo had, which have been kept uh, under lock and key for the last 50 years. In 1951, a year after he arrived in the Soviet Union, he had a plan to use a nuclear reactor in order to look for neutrinos. But he was refused any access to a nuclear reactor. That was the first hint that life in the Soviet Union was not going to be simple. So he lost out on that. The next uh, thing, 1960, 10 years after he's been there, he had the idea, which is one of his great ideas, the idea that there is more than one variety of neutrino. The neutrino had been discovered now by Cowan and Rhinus in the States, and Ponte Corvo had the idea there's more than one variety. In the jargon, we call them electron neutrinos or muon neutrinos, but more than one variety. And on his tombstone there, that Greek symbol says that the muon neutrino is not the same as the electron neutrino. It's that level of significance that it's been recorded. And this insight he had was a great theoretical idea which he published in Russian. And in those days, you never saw any Russian stuff until it had been translated into English. And it was probably a couple of years later before you would be aware of it over here in the West. And in the meantime, some scientists in America had had the same idea. The second thing was, Ponte Corvo also had the idea of how to test this hypothesis. And basically, you needed to go to an accelerator that would produce neutrinos with high energy. And the Soviet Union didn't have any such place, but CERN in Geneva was ideal. The Russians, however, refused to allow him to leave the Soviet Union to go to CERN and do the experiment. Two years later, Steinberger, Schwartz and Lederman, three scientists in the United States, had had the same idea, did the experiment at Long Island in, uh, in New York, and got the Nobel Prize for it. So that is certainly a case where Ponte Corvo, there was a Nobel Prize for others that Ponte Corvo had had the idea and was prevented following it through. So he was refused to travel. The next idea which he's famous for is the idea that the sun is a source of neutrinos. And uh, maybe you've heard me talk about the saga of the solar neutrinos before. It took 40 years for... Ray Davies, an experimentalist in America, to convincingly demonstrate that he could detect neutrinos coming all the way across space from the sun. And uh, he used a method, big tanks of chlorine, to uh, detect these solar neutrinos. And the method was originally thought of by Ponte Corvo. And Ponte Corvo has always been regarded as the hero of solar neutrinos. The problem was that after 40 years, Davis had convinced people he was able to see solar neutrinos, but there weren't enough of them. And that was a huge puzzle. I remember in the early days that Graham referred to when he very delicately showed how old I was, that uh, this was a big puzzle. Why aren't there enough of these neutrinos from the sun? We now know the answer. And it was Ponte Corvo, yet again, in 1968, who had come up with the idea. He had previously had the idea there's more than one variety of neutrino. The sun is producing one of these. And if, in their journey across space, 
the wonders of quantum mechanics can cause this neutrino to turn into this one and back again, oscillating back and forth. By the time they get here, there's only a 50-50 chance that you pick up the one you're looking for. And that, we now know, is indeed the answer. So Pontecorvo had both had the idea that stimulated Davis and had the solution to the problem that Davis was finding, which is wonderful. The problem was that by the time this was all sorted out, 2002, when Ray Davis got the Nobel Prize at the age of 87, Pontecorvo had been dead for nine years. So he never survived long enough to see this great thing happen. The other tragedy is that Davis shared his Nobel Prize with a Japanese called Koshiba, and Koshiba's detector had detected the great supernova of 1987, not in light, but in neutrinos. And it was Pontecorvo who had predicted that supernova could produce neutrinos and that you could detect supernova by neutrinos. So I think the message you get from this is that Pontecorvo, his name is written right across the whole of neutrino physics. And even the stuff that's going on today that you hear about firing neutrinos under the Earth to see if they change from one form to another, trying to measure their masses and so on, they all trace back to Bruno Pontecorvo. Had we had nothing whatsoever about espionage in it at all, you could have written a biography of, New uh, of Bruno Pontecorvo, which would have established him as one of the great scientists. And then there's this other half-life to him, which is fascinating. But before I get to that, what I'll show you next is to undermine one of these things. Everybody knows that Bruno was the father of solar neutrinos. If you didn't know it before, I've written it in a book, so it must be right. Unfortunately, it was wrong as I discovered when I started digging in the archives. that The paper that Pontecorvo wrote in 1946 with this idea in it is the one that everybody cites, me included. However, it turns out that in 1945, he had written his first paper on this, and it was classified secret. Obviously, somebody was worried that if you could detect neutrinos coming from a nuclear reactor, it would be possible for spies to work out how much power the nuclear reactor was producing. Um, not that it would ever have worked, but the paper was classified secret, and it was not declassified until, what is it, 1962 or so. And in this paper, there is no... It's talking about ways of detecting neutrinos to prove that the things exist. There is no mention of solar neutrinos anywhere. And then, at the very end of the paper, you see his signature, and then there's a note added which says, Dr. Price pointed out to the author that the flux of neutrinos from the sun is quite considerable. Maurice Price is the person who had the idea about solar neutrinos. And then you read on and you see that this value is too low for an experiment of the type suggested. So Bruno Pontecorvo dismissed it. Twelve months later, decided maybe it was a good thing to mention. And now, historically, by accident, has been given the credit for what was actually somebody else's idea. But... We'll take that one away, but he still scored a lot on the other ones. So that really shows that he was a very serious scientist, both before his time going out to the Soviet Union, when he already had a huge reputation in nuclear physics, in areas that would have great interest strategically for nuclear reactors and, and weapons and so on, and also his work in pure particle physics, for which he's been primarily known, that lasted throughout his life, the one tragedy being that, being in the Soviet Union, he never was able to get the full credit that he deserved uh, for all that work with the neutrinos. So, at this stage, I, as a scientist, had decided that his scientific story was clear. He had got two half-lives. 
and his scientific reputation never hit the public attention the way it should have done because he had gone to the Soviet Union in 1950. So why did he do it? So that was an interesting question in its own right. And the more I started asking that question, the deeper I got into other things. And uh, that's really what the second half of the talk about is the other half of his life. Why did he flee and what did he know? It was a tip-off from the ubiquitous Kim Philby that caused Pontecorvo suddenly to make the decision to jump the Soviet Union. I will just assert this and then I shall give you the proof. Um, Pontecorvo and his family had gone on holiday. I, I believe strongly that they had every intention of coming back to the UK at the end of that holiday. Gilles Pontecorvo, who is now a 77-year-old physicist in Moscow still, who was 12 at the time, uh, was very useful in all of this, this research. And he said he always felt that this was a sudden decision. And that, at least, I am sure of, so we shall now see. So let's try to understand what it was like at that time. Go back to 1950. In February 1950, Klaus Fuchs was exposed, he was arrested. He'd been watched for about four months, and he was arrested, convicted of espionage. Fawkes gave the name of his uh, courier, a man called Harry Gold, in the States. Harry Gold then led the FBI to David Greenglass, and whose sister was Ethel Rosenberg, whose husband was Julius Rosenberg, and they ended up in the electric chair. So as a result of Fuchs's arrest, there was quite disasters along the line leading to the execution uh, of the Rosenbergs. The spy networks, the Soviet spy networks in North America were decimated, and McCarthyism was also rampant and growing. The belief that there were reds under the bed was everywhere. So that was the environment that one was in. And it all followed from the arrest and exposure of Fuchs. So why was it that Fuchs was actually exposed? It was because the Soviet diplomatic codes had been cracked. The code name for this is called Venona. If I say Venona, it's a shorthand for the Soviet diplomatic codes, which an American mathematician called Meredith Gardner had cracked and was decoding. And in these codes, they picked up a reference to three atomic spies by code names, Charles, Malad, and Quantum. And there was enough information in there that they were able to pin down, eventually, that Charles was Klaus Fuchs. And is that that led to Fuchs's exposure. But the identities of Malad and Quantum were completely unknown. And an obvious question that you can sort of see hanging in the background is, was Bruno Pontecorvo one of Malad or Quantum? I'll say straight away, there are many books that have been written in the last 60 years that claim that he was, and I can tell you now he wasn't. We now know who those people were, and I will tell you in a minute, just in passing. But that was the situation. So uh, you can then start trying to chase this. After all, this is all in the days of Los Alamos, so go and look at the FBI files, and I've already shown you this, but there it is again. There is an espionage file in the FBI on Bruno Pontecorvo, and that's all that you will learn from it. But... The FBI clearly were interested in him. And this is then what happened. That's the uh, results of that letter from the House of Lords and the discovery of this lost file 
I went through the file, and suddenly I found something that totally unexpected, a letter. A letter sent from the British Embassy in Washington to the Director General of MI5 in London. And the thing that I just noticed was the date, July the 13th, 1950. Now, Pontecorvo went off on his holiday on the 24th of July for six weeks and never returned. This is the last thing on the file before Pontecorvo left. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. What's this all about? And so you read the letter. So let's see what it's all about. So I have to read it up here. The FBI informed me that it has been reported to them that Pontecorvo is at present employed by Harwell. Uh, the me, Patterson, is the MI5 representative in the British Embassy. So he is writing to his ultimate boss, the DG, Percy Tillito, in London. They add that they addressed communications dated February 2nd, 10th, and 19th, 1943, to British intelligence on the subject of Pontecorvo. Uh, this was 1943 when Pontecorvo was being vetted to work in Canada on the nuclear reactor as part of the Manhattan Project. So the FBI have sent three letters in the space of three weeks about Pontecorvo. And these letters, regrettably, never arrived. They got lost somewhere. The fact they got lost is quite innocent. I mean, conspiracy theorists will read something in that. Don't, don't worry. There's even more interesting stuff in a minute. So these letters got lost. They never got through. Presumably, they must have been written, sent either direct to London or to British Security Centre in New York because the lo uh, local SIS representative cannot trace the correspondence. Many of the files were, of course, destroyed. Uh, local SIS representative means the MI6 man uh, representative in the British Embassy in Washington uh, has been looking for these letters and can't find them either. Pondicorvo was definitely working on the Canadian Atomic Energy Program for a period during the war, but had lived in the United States. The Bureau now asks if we can send them any information which may be available to us, which would indicate that Pontecorvo may be engaged in communist activities at the present time or may have been engaged in such activities during his residence in the United States. So the FBI are clearly interested in Pontecorvo for communist activities. It doesn't say what those activities actually are. I mean, it could be, does he read the Daily Worker? To the other extreme, is he passing information to the Soviets? It just doesn't tell you. All you know is the FBI is interested in Pontecorvo for some reason, to do with communist activities. This letter has been sent from Washington to the DG of MI5 in London, and then, six weeks later, Pontecorvo has jumped ship. So how could Pontecorvo have been alerted to the fact that the FBI is interested in him? Not the head of MI5, unless you're a Chapman Pincher person who believes that Roger Hollis was working for the KGB, because it wasn't Roger Hollis at that stage, anyway. Well, there's one other person that is aware of this, and is mentioned in this letter. The local SIS representative cannot trace the correspondence. So in the Washington Embassy, SIS is MI6. So Patterson is the MI5 man, and he says, my MI6 colleague has been looking and can't find them. For those of you who don't realize what this is, the MI6 man in Washington's British Embassy in 1950 was Kim Philby. So you have a direct evidence here that Philby is fully aware that the FBI is interested in this Pontecorvo person. And um, Philby, well, if you've read his autobiography, he was an utter bastard, but he writes beautifully. Um, and he says it very plainly, he says it straight out. Basically, 
Um, I did my work sufficiently in order that nobody... Basically, I was paid by the British taxpayer to work for Moscow, is really what it came down to. That he said, my masters were the Soviets, and my whole aim was to serve them, and I did my British work only insofar as it kept my head above the parapet, roughly speaking. So now put yourself in Philby's position. You are one of a handful, a literal handful of people who know about Venona. The biggest secret of the post-war era, comparable probably to the level of the secrets of radar during the war, were that we had cracked these Soviet codes. And only half a dozen people or so were privy to that, and one of them was Kim Philby. Now, he, at that stage, had already noticed in some of the decoded messages references to his colleague Donald McLean, of Burgess and McLean fame. So he was watching everything and wanted to be totally on top of anything that came out, not least if there's any mention of him. And he has seen this interest expressed in Pontecorvo. But Philby, because he's knowing about Venona is aware that there are these three atomic scientists who are known by codename, of which only one, namely Fuchs, has been identified. And I should just tell you that um, Philby tipped off, or attempted to tip off Fuchs to the fact that basically there was no evidence against him, but Fuchs didn't get that message in time and confessed and was uh, convicted. But the obvious question you can now see, I don't think this is a great imagination, Philby, you know that there's Malad and Quantum whose identities are not yet known. You know the FBI are interested in this atomic scientist Pontecorvo for communist activities. Could these be the same people? That's not your problem to decide. Your job is to pass the message on. And this, I believe, is what happened. Uh, let me just fill in before we go on to what happened as to who Malad and Quantum were so we can get Pontecorvo out of the picture here. It's a bit of a black comedy. This is all going on for the wrong reasons. We know today Malad is the Russian for youngster, and Malad was Ted Hall. How many people here have heard of Ted Hall? Right? How many people here have heard of Klaus Fuchs? Yes. Which of the two would you regard as the more successful? The message should be Ted Hall, because you hadn't heard of him, if you get the logic. Fuchs confessed. And led to the death of the Rosenbergs, among other things. For, uh, Ted Hall, however, said nothing. And his identity was not revealed until 1990s or so. So he actually was quite comparable in many ways to Fuchs and complementary to him. Um, Quantum was a man called Podolsky, and I just mentioned that. Anybody who's heard of the EPR paradox, Einstein, Podolsky, Rosen, it's that Podolsky, Boris Podolsky. So with that in mind, let's just move on. So... Malad and Quantum have nothing at all to do with Pontecorvo, but you, Kim Philby, do not know that. Your job is to pass on the message that the FBI are interested in this atomic scientist, Pontecorvo. It turns out that Philby was very suspicious of the Russian embassy in Washington. He didn't deal with them. He dealt through Guy Burgess in London. So Philby will pass this information on to Guy Burgess. Guy Burgess would then inform the Soviet embassy in London the Soviet embassy in London would then inform Moscow, and Moscow then have to notify Pontecorvo. But Pontecorvo has gone on holiday. July the 24th, he's gone on holiday with his wife, two sons, uh, three sons, and his sister Anna, 
who is still alive, and I managed to interview her, her memories all about this. They left Abingdon by car, drove across France to Switzerland, uh, went to Milan where their parents live, saw the parents in Milan, went down to Rome. Uh, Anna stayed in Rome and then came back by train. Bruno and the family spent two or three weeks snorkeling off the Italian coast, absolutely idyllic camping all the way in the days when you weren't allowed to take more than 25 pounds out with you. So it was a sort of a cheap holiday. And they planned to see their parents on the way back. They were going to go to Chamonix, meet the parents and so on. And uh, they didn't turn up because on the 31st of August, instead of coming back home by car, they ditched the car and they flew from Rome via Munich to Stockholm, stayed overnight in Stockholm. His wife Marianne's family came from Stockholm. Ten minutes from the airport, they didn't visit them at all. They stayed in some place in Stockholm. The next morning, got onto a flight to Helsinki. In Helsinki, they were met by two cars, which drove them ultimately into the Soviet Union. And this part of the story I've had verified through Gilles Pontecorvo, the son, as I said, who was 12 at the time, who made one of the most wonderful understatements that I have ever heard. And I put it in the book, and I'll tell it to you now. He said, uh, there were two cars. I, my mother, and two uh, brothers in one car. Bruno in other car in trunk. I know something was up. <laughs> so uh, that's what happened. And for five years, nobody knew anything about them. No, none of their family knew where they were. They weren't even allowed to send any communications to their family. They never saw their parents again. Uh, Bruno never saw his parents again. Marianne never saw her parents again. You imagine what it's like to be their parents. And one of the, the things that I found saddest of all was in the archives finding all the letters that the parents had sent in desperation to Bruno at his house in Abingdon, trying to find out where he was, what had happened. They, of course, the Pontecorvo, Bruno and family never found these things. They landed on the mats in Abingdon until MI5 found them and put them all in the files. I have read all these things and I just find it harrowing and then talking to Gilles Pontecorvo, who has never seen these things in his life. And the effect upon the family, I mean, fallout is probably the wrong word to use in this circumstance, but the, the effect on the surrounding family was absolutely devastating, as you can probably imagine. But let me t tell you more about uh, what we dug out on this. So they flew uh, with SAS from uh, Rome to Munich to Stockholm, uh, and uh, here is the ticket manifest. Um, and uh, what I just want you to note on that is just look at it. Uh, but the right-hand columns, uh, there's two figures, 10 and 60. 10 means the number of pieces of baggage they've checked in. 60 is the number of kilograms in total weight. So do the math, as they say. That's six kilograms on average per, per bag. This is almost like hand baggage 10 times over. They've been on a camping holiday. These are camping sacks. They have gone off to the Soviet Union to spend the rest of their life just taking the stuff they had on their camping trip. If you are planning to spend the rest of your life in the Soviet Union for whatever reasons, you at least take your wife's fur coat, which was found in Abingdon. Bruno could have, if Bruno, as he later claimed, went for purely idealistic reasons, there was nothing to stop him. You could leave Britain and go and live in the Soviet Union if you wished to. You didn't have to have an exit visa from here. There was nothing illegal in it. You could have planned it and organized it. Bruno had got enough intelligence to do that. Uh, any way he liked. So this fits very much again with this belief that it happened suddenly 
which is also consistent with because the news of the Philby tip-off had finally reached him. And this I can't verify, but I think it's 90% clear. It reached him through his cousin, Emilio Sereni, who was a communist member of the Italian government and who went back and forward to the Soviet Union very regularly. So much so that I also wondered whether Bruno genuinely thought that he could come back and forward regularly from the Soviet Union. Of course, it's only when you got there he discovered it was a one-way trip in Stalin's fiefdom. So that is what the message of the, the, the baggage is. But there's another message on here. I should say, I was a train spotter when I was younger, so I sort of obsess with numbers. And I can bracket this another way, which is this. Now look at the numbers of the tickets. And you see that the Pontecorvo family, but not Bruno, are all in one ticket bunch. Book 522, numbers 2581596, blah, blah, blah. Bruno, however, is in a different book, number 523, and his number is in a, almost bracketed with these two gentlemen above him, Mr. Allegrini, an Italian, Mr. Whitker, uh, stateless, whose identity was never, uh, never settled by MI5, and without any doubt, they concluded that these were the two KGB minders that were protecting the investment that was being made in Pontecorvo, because the tickets cost 602 US dollars. This is Pontecorvo after a camping holiday where he was on his last pennies, had only been able to bring out about 20 pounds a day for the camping, and suddenly is able to buy 602 US dollars worth of tickets. Where did that money come from? Obviously, having provided it, the KGB wanted to maintain their investment. So uh, what happened next? Well, what happened next was nobody noticed until October. So what happened on the 12th of September, 12 days after Pontecorvo has disappeared, but so far nobody yet knows the fact, is this. Kim Philby, based in Washington, as an MI6 representative in Washington, comes across to London and talks to the MI5 Deputy Director General. Guy Liddell was the Deputy DG. And the great thing about Liddell is he kept a diary. And his diaries are now accessible. And the great thing about diaries is they tell you what really happened, as against when you read files with minutes, which are designed, as you well know, on committees to tell you what didn't happen. And Guy Liddell's diary is lovely, because it records that Philby visited him on the 12th, and it records what happened, and it's this. I had a long talk with Kim Philby. I do not think he's very happy in America. He clearly feels that he's not really getting enough scope. I thought I discerned a fly thrown over me in the form of a suggestion that it was really unnecessary for us to have a Washington representative and that he could carry the whole business. Um, well, to decode that, a fly thrown over me is a beautiful 1950s expression of me trying to sort of uh, pass one over on me. The message here is that Philby is trying to convince his MI5 buddy, the deputy DG, that he doesn't really need to have this man Patterson in the Washington <coughs> office. I can handle it all. Now, why is Philby interested in that? Well, I would suggest it's the following. Imagine again, you're Philby. You have tipped off the Soviets about Pontecorvo, and you now know that Pontecorvo is gone. You have got one thing that would worry you, or if I was in his position, I would have this thing to worry me. Could there be in Moscow a double agent analog of me? By that I mean, could there be a British or American person masquerading as KGB who will pick up the fact when Pontecorvo is interrogated, as indeed I established he was, 
will pick up the fact that Pontecorvo is there because a paper trail leads back to a tip-off from Washington, in which case I'm in doo-doo. Now, Philby knew that there was no British double agent, but he didn't know anything at all about whether there was an American double agent. So he needed to be able to cover the fact that if, a if there was an echo from Moscow went back to the uh, CIA, which then came back through the Washington office again, he wanted to make damn sure that he saw it and that Mr. Patterson didn't see it and pass the message on. As it turns out, none of that happened because there wasn't any such double agent. And uh, anyway, Guy Liddell uh, didn't give Philby the time of day on this, but th that is sort of intriguing. Then you get the real irony, because then by October, Pontecorvo's disappearance has been fully noticed and everybody is wetting their pants trying to deal with this. And the tactic that the government used was to try and play down. He wasn't important. He was a low-level scientist. I mean, I've shown you already he was not a low-level scientist and the things that he knew. But anyway, that was the tactic. And to put no fine point on it, there was actually a cover-up between Percy Silito, the head in the UK, and J. Edgar Hoover in the States to try and mutually downplay this. The reason being, it all went back to those letters in 1943 that had got lost. How is it that Pontecorvo had slipped through the net and got into the Manhattan Project in the first place? Answer, because the letters about his communist association had never made their way through to the Brits. Was it the FBI that had messed up? Was it the Brits that had messed up? They were never able to establish this and decided this was so important that they would both try to keep wraps on it. And the FBI agreed that they would make no statements without checking with MI5 and vice versa. I'll just show you in a moment a brief note to that effect. But here they are saying, presumably Philby can now handle Washington end. Suggest you proceed. I mean, the idea that Philby will take care of the Washington end and keep it all quiet, but Philby is the man whose finger's right there in the pie. So the strategy, as I said, was to downplay Pontecorvo's importance, to have a cover-up with the FBI. The reality was that he was hugely important to the Soviets, and there are suspicions of espionage, which I shall reveal in the last uh, few minutes here. So here is an example um, of the MI5 attempt to downplay and the, the, the cover-up. Um, there's some stuff here which I've obscured because it would just take too much time. It's irrelevant, but it's all in the book. But you see here, it is naturally desirable that these facts should not become public, and we believe that the FBI will keep quiet about them if it can. And uh, what that all means, you can read if you wish to. So uh, what, then, are the clues as to what he may have done if, indeed, he did anything? Because nobody has ever established, A, that he did. I should say, there is nothing at all on the MI5 files other than gossip. There was gossip that he had communist associations and communist relatives, which actually was true, and nothing more solid than that. And the best that the British security authorities could do was to say, we are uncomfortable with having this man doing work at Harwell. Let's move him to Liverpool University where he will be able to carry on his work but without having access to secret stuff. And that is why uh, Pontecorvo, when he went on holiday, was expecting to come back to Liverpool University. So what is it he might have done, or did he do anything? Well, Igor Kurchatov, I mentioned him back in the 1930s. He was working on the same stuff as Pontecorvo. They knew each other, and in 1943, Kurchatov became the head of the Soviet atomic bomb project. And it's on record. The first thing that he did was to avoid reinventing the wheel, was to find out what is known in North America and who's doing what. That was the instruction that was sent out from Moscow. I find it inconceivable 
that Kirchhoff would could have overlooked the fact that Pontecorvo, a man who he knew professionally, whose communist background must have been known to him because Pontecorvo joined the Communist Party in 1939, was working at the nuclear reactor in Canada. Of course, we do not know what Pontecorvo's reaction would have been when approached, but the fact that he was approached, I think, must be almost certain. But I have established that there were two leaks, at least, from the Canadian reactor. The blueprints of the reactor found their way to uh, Moscow sometime shortly before the 1st of January 1950. And a sample, a rare, a sample of a rare form of uranium also made its way. For those of you who know about Alan Nunmay, who passed some uranium, this is another sample of uranium. It's not the, the Nunmay thing. So there are two unexplained uh, leaks uh, from the Canadian reactor. And somebody was responsible for those. If it's not Bruno, there is somebody else out there. But anyway. So uh, let me then add to this one further little thing. If we focus on the blueprints of the reactor and the uranium sample, I do know that a courier called Lona Cohen, who was perhaps one of the most successful couriers for the KGB, uh, transported some uranium and probably the blueprints from the Canadian reactor. She was a courier. She made periodic visits to the US-Canadian border where she met somebody. And uh, Bruno Pontecorvo also made quite regular visits to the US-Canadian border because he was wanting to keep his US... The possibility of taking US citizenship, he wanted to keep that alive. This doesn't prove that they met, but it's intriguing coincidence. There is one further intriguing coincidence before I tell you something even more intriguing. Uh, Lona Cohen uh, and her husband, Morris, they were a husband and wife team, the Soviet couriers. They, following the Fuchs debacle, they were spirited out of, the, of North America themselves also, back to the Soviet Union for safety just about two weeks before Pontecorvo himself disappeared. This, again, might be coincidence. How many people here have heard the names Lona and Morris Cohen before? Right, okay. How many people here of a certain age have heard the names Helen and Peter Kroger? More so. For the youngsters, I'll now tell you. Um, the, the, the Cohens were reinvented as Helen and Peter Kroger and exported to Royslip, um, just up the road here, where they ran the Portland Spiring until 1961, masquerading as New Zealand uh, uh, antiquarians, where in actual fact they were uh, American citizens who were perhaps the KGB's most successful couriers through the Second World War. And I strongly suspect that Lona Cohen and Bruno Pontecorvo knew each other. One final thing to say, 1948, um, Bruno arrives at Harwell. It's just begun. It was a rural backwater at that time. And one of the intriguing things about that that the people at Abingdon School were very interested in last night when I talked about it, and it's this. Good old Guy Liddell's diaries reveal that in 1946 he had a great idea, which was to place informers in the labs like Harwell. Um, he wanted to have informants in all laboratories where work on atomic energy was going on. Such informants should make it their business to know as much as possible about the general mode of living and political views of young scientists. Now, being an MI5 man, he didn't know... You know, as a scientist, you tend to notice if an MI5 man's in your lab. <laughs> so, that was pointed out. And so he had a clever move. Don't put the person in the lab. Put them somewhere where they'll be in good contact with the lab. And in October 49, when they started watching Fuchs, a new master arrived at Abingdon School. A man named Roy Barker. He was the music teacher at Abingdon School from January 1950 to summer 1954. 
except for a six weeks leave of absence in 1952 when he took a music tour of Yugoslavia. I live in Abingdon. I can assure you there is no record of anybody in Abingdon of that generation who knew of anything taking a music tour of Yugoslavia in 1952. I mean, it beggars belief. But anyway, that's not as interesting as the following thing. Mr. Barker eventually became the head of one of the divisions in MI5. Uh, he was exposed by the news of the world during the IRA times as the spy on the bike. And when he retired in the 1980s as head of the bugging division, he took his CB and retired at the Spooks Club. I think it is quite probable that he was part of Guy Liddell's plan. And Lorna Arnold, who regretfully died last year at the age of 98 or so, she was wonderful because I was talking to her about this. And, she, and it was she that opened it for me. I had been viewing the question, was this man already in MI5 as the school teacher, or did the headmaster of the school, who was a former intelligence person, identify the talent and recommend him to MI5? And she said, oh, no, it's not the school. She said, he was a musician. And she said, you've got to realise, when Harwell began, this around here was a, a rural backwater. I mean, even today, Harwell's in the middle of nowhere. She said, there's all these bright people came from North America and everywhere else like that, and they had to create their own entertainment, their own music societies and drama groups and so forth. She said, wonderful being a, a, a musician, you just join in, you pick up the gossip of the community. The school was a genuine cover for him as a school teacher, and his nighttime work as a musician would be presumably to listen. Not that it actually achieved very much, but that's another little novel thing that we picked up. So to come to the end, um, Bruno arrived in the Soviet Union, and ironically, thanks to his son Gilles, we managed to finally get released his logbooks, which reveal that indeed, from 1951 onwards, he did nothing but genuine, honest uh, particle physics work of pure interest. However, one noticed that this is the advantage of being a physicist. I looked at this and I thought, what on earth is this? The very first questions he was asked there were about H4 particles. Now, if anybody here knows what H4 particles are, yes, not many hands going up. Proton, deuteron, tritium, and H4 particles, which don't exist, but they didn't know that in 1950. If H4 particles existed, they would have been much more efficient than tritium in liberating energy in fusion, which you could use in a fusion reactor like a jet in Cullum or in a thermonuclear weapon, which was the, the goal of Stalin. So Pontecorvo was asked two or three very strategically interesting questions in the first three days there, and then basically that was it. So uh, these logbooks are an interesting story, but not for tonight. So to quickly move to the end, what happened to him there? For five years, he was under house arrest, basically. He couldn't communicate with anybody. Not exactly the treatment for a hero of the Soviet Union, which is the way he would like to have presented himself. For 28 years, he was not allowed to travel outside the USSR, which, as we saw earlier, prevented him doing critical experiments that would have won him, I think, a Nobel Prize. Neither he nor Marianne ever saw their parents again. Marianne suffered mental breakdown. The only reason she was there was to accompany her husband. And the glamorous cover from 1938... In 1970, at a conference, Bruno still retained his sort of film star looks. Marianne, however, was very sad. Um, he was finally allowed to leave to go to Rome in 1978, and here he is at Rome Airport with two physicists, in quote, who are actually KGB minders. Um, one of Bruno's nephews in Italy is himself 
the scientist, and he was telling me his delight at interviewing these two who claimed to be physicists, and he said they were even worse than, well, he won't say what. Uh, <laughs> Bruno then had Parkinson's disease. He died in 1993. He was always a prankster, loved playing jokes, and this photograph was taken of him balancing his walking cane on his foot. He said, strange thing, this disease, he said, shaking like this. The moment he balanced his walking cane on his foot, he could balance it and the shaking stopped. And the moment he picked it up again, he would start shaking. And he died in 1993. Um, and the two neutrinos is the thing that is remembered on his tombstone. So to summarise, what's the circumstantial evidence? Well, somebody was responsible for leaking the blueprints and the uranium. If it wasn't Bruno, it was somebody else. Kirchhoff knew Ponty. He was in the Communist Party. And I would suggest that if I was Kirchhoff, I would have said to Ponty, would you help us build a nuclear reactor to provide power for the citizens of this glorious country to help us? It would be pretty churlish to say no. And then, of course, it's all downhill from there. Um, Philby tipped off Moscow, that I think is clear. The code of the crow is going to Moscow is an intriguing coincidence, which may not be a coincidence. And to sum it all up, what I do, I say, if you remember what it was like in the days when people thought that the Earth was the centre of the solar system, you could explain everything, but you had to have lots of epicycles. It's similar to this here. You can explain away all of the actions in this saga by making epicycles. However, if you put the sun at the centre, everything falls into place. If you believe that Ponty passed some information, it all falls into place. So I will end with uh, Ponty's last, not his last words, but uh, one informant who I did not reveal the name of in the book by request, told me about an ABC film crew that was in Moscow in 1992 and who uh, requested an interview with Pontikovo, and Pontikovo declined in Russian, If anybody people here read Russian, you know what he was saying, which was, I want to be remembered as a great scientist, not as your f***ing spy. <laughs> and regrettably, we don't know which way he put the emphasis on that, because you can interpret it either of two ways that he was so fed up with being accused of spying for 50 years, he wanted to be remembered as the great scientist, is what he, what he really was. Or his scientific career had been ruined, and it was you guys that had ruined it as your f***ing spy. And so this is the last enigma in the half-life. So uh, there we are. I mean, Abingdon School Archives played an amazing role. Gilles Pontecorvo, his son, 12-year-old at the time, has been quite remarkable in this, and many others, not all of whom can be named. And that is the end. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Frank, for that excellent talk, which I think fully does justice to your, uh, your book. There's time for questions. Uh, lights are rather uh, bright, uh, but I will see if I can... Uh, uh, please wait for the microphone to come to you and then speak to that. This gentleman first, please. Hey. Um, did any of the children get the letters from you, or um, did they read them? Uh, they didn't get them from me. They are there in either the archives in Churchill College, Cambridge, or in the National Archives in London, they are open to anybody who wishes to read them, um, but they have not done, not to my knowledge anyway. Yeah. Robert Barnes. I found this talk extremely interesting, uh, but far too informed and complicated for me to absorb. I hope that some of this is written down in some way, someone can Well, the, the book that's up, advertised up there has got it 
well, and more okay. besides. <laughs> I have a particular interest yes. because as a young scientist, I lived in uh, Lacey's Court in Abingdon at the oh. same time as Mr. F Dr. Fuchs. Yeah. Um, one didn't get to know Fuchs at all. He kept himself to himself. I always remember his father coming out to visit him one time. His father had a, 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 a colony. He was obviously a, yeah. a parson of some yes, sort. Yes, he was. The other one is Pontecorvo. And here, we actually lived in the house exactly opposite the one you photographed there in Abingdon, in Lecombe Avenue. Yep. And we saw Pontecorvo and his family, but they didn't interact either. There was no communication. And suddenly, they disappeared, and that was it. So I'm looking forward to seeing what you've been saying in writing. So you knew so Anthony and Paul Gardner? Thank you very much. Okay. It's a great shame you weren't with us last night, because I had a pre-launch talk at Abingdon School, for obvious reasons. And I showed some different slides there. I, had, I was able to reach the people who lived at number seven and number nine and round the corner and find them, and uh, their memories of it were all remarkable. And uh, you would have added to it, but I've got my book here. You can give me your contact details and uh, <laughs> write them in there, Graham, and, uh, and I'll get in touch with you. No, the name was Cobham. Was the head, uh, but Mr. Grundy, I think, ran the milk farm that delivered the milk, which was lying on Pontecorvo's front step for a week or two. And he said, well, not he, but somebody said to me that he sent a bill to the Russian embassy, but they never paid up. <laughs> Uh, you're, you're saying that um, yeah, you're saying that uh, sort of his sudden defection was was probably as a result of a tip-off. But you've already said that uh, he was being moved from Harwell to, to Liverpool when he got back. So, so even without a tip-off, presumably he must have realised that he was creating some suspicions for that move to being proposed. Y yes, but um, the only suspicions were that uh, about communist background. After the Fuchs debacle, uh, Ponty volunteered the fact to the security officer at Harwell that he had communist relatives, but denied that he was a communist himself. I think that was a clever move to try to deflect attention. Um, and the fact that he was then going to be moved to Liverpool was a very natural um, thing. That was the plan for Fuchs. And if Fuchs had kept his mouth shut, he would have gone to Liverpool also. Um, there's nothing negative about Liverpool here. It's just that one of the Harwell uh, people was himself going to take up a new professorship there, and they had a big new accelerator there, so it was a very good place to go to. Um, so there was nothing more to it than that. Um, and I believe that Ponty would have come back to Liverpool, uh, and just as Fuchs would also. I mean, had Fuchs kept quiet and Ponty not panicked, it would have been a wonderful department at Liverpool. And Ponty, yeah, as you I saw... There, it was a wonderful department. <laughs> <laughs> They might not have let you in. You know. <laughs> but, um, you know, I, I sort of dream what British physics would have been like with Ponte Corvo's personality and know-how and yeah. natural gifts. But that's another universe. Yeah. Incidentally, Frank, uh, just to say, when you came to, to Liverpool in 74, Ponte Corvo could have been there. Mm. I remember when you came. So it's, it's yeah. an interesting, you know, intersection that could have been there. I just want to check, there's nobody over here who's want to ask a question? Sorry, is there one? Ah, okay, I'll come here and then I'll make sure we, some, get, we get a microphone well, If you, you shout, I can repeat this the question. gentleman here and then we'll... Yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll be up to you next. Yeah. 
Yeah, I did go up to Liverpool to read physics um, uh, just before Pontecorvo got there. In fact, I remember the headlines in the Liverpool Echo. Um, phys, um, new chair of physics uh, absconds, um, doesn't take up the post. And the, the idea that the MI5 would actually sort of shove him in there and indeed, you know, get the job without being interviewed by the faculty and all that kind of thing, I find quite interesting. Uh, as you say, there was an excellent uh, synchronous cyclotron just starting up in Liverpool in those days. And uh, anyway, you and I both there, different times, but nonetheless, it was mm. a good place. Actually, my question is, um, all those years uh, that uh, Pontecorvo spent in the Soviet Union, um, did he not publish his stuff? Uh, was he allowed to publish? I mean, for goodness sake, you know, no, this must have been tremendous yes. material waiting to come out. For, for the first five years, nothing was published. It was all classified secret. Nobody, even in the Soviet Union, only a handful of people knew that he was there. Um, after 55, then he published. Um, but of course, for a long period of time, it was all in Russian journals. I remember when I first started over here, until the 1980s or so, Russian stuff was published in Russian journals and translated into English later. Um, and that is part of the reason, I think, why even today, many people from the former Soviet Union feel that they have missed out in the credit list. Mm. Uh, in fact, technical things, I, I demonstrate in the book that Pontecorvo independently discovered something called associated production of strange particles, which Gell-Mann gets all the credit for because he did it, but Pontecorvo did it independently, but it was classified. Mm. Yep. Right, up okay. the top. Okay, thank you, sir. Um, <clears throat> yes, uh, the, uh, I think there's no doubt Pontecorvo was expected at Liverpool because in, uh, in 1950, ITV uh, had a programme called Youth is Asking and they got uh, half a dozen boys and half a dozen girls from the Altrincham Grammar Schools, of which I was one, and we went along to the ITV studios. We were given a meal and made up and all this sort of business. And... Uh, during this time, there was furtive messages passed to the producer who said that um, Professor Pontecorvo had been delayed. <laughs> and anyhow, eventually we got a professor of philosophy from uh, Liverpool. So he was quite definitely a Liverpool-identified uh, person. And of course, it does put a slightly different spin. I don't wish to detract from what you've been saying in this lecture, but the prospect of being examined on your moral uh, abilities and views by 12 precocious children is probably a good reason to do a runner. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's very interesting. That's the second theory I've had. In Canada, um, I met uh, a, a, a yeah. well-known physicist who was a graduate student at that time, and apparently Pontecorvo was going to be his supervisor. And he met Pontecorvo, and Pontecorvo came up to look at Liverpool, and he says, I believe he took one look at me and decided to leave. <laughs> Was there a question here? Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I mentioned that I was coming to this lecture last week to a school friend of mine from Rome, and he was telling me that his, um, he was a, uh, his, his relative of Pontecorvo. His grandparents were in touch with him. He has letters from him. Because he told me that in the 80s, um, I don't know if all of them, at least one of the, of the children tried to come back in Italy. And there is this exchange of letter because they thought they could come back. So can with you this, wave so I can see where you are? Oh, yeah. With his grandparents. Oh, sorry, right up there. Yes, carry on. Yes, and there's a, he has these letters with uh, this correspondence with his grandparents trying to help the, one of the son, oh. at least, to come back. I don't know whether this is a 
personal or is a known fact? Um, right. Uh, Tito uh, certainly uh, got very unhappy. He was an oceanologist and he became aware that he was never allowed to join his crew uh, doing research out of the, in the waters out of the Soviet Union. And when he complained about this, they said, do you not have enough water in Soviet Union to do your work? You know? um, and he then confronted Bruno. I think this was 1977-ish. Um, he confronted Bruno and said, you know, you have ruined my career. And he gave up science and um, started raising horses. He now lives in America. I find it quite ironic that the two Italian-named boys have spent the whole of their life in Russia, and Tito, the one who I drew attention to, is now a good old capitalist living in America. Um, but it may have been he. I discovered that Gilles was allowed to go to Italy uh, to a meeting, and he met the family a year before Bruno was allowed out. So that was, again, 77 times. It may have been, uh, may have been Gilles. But uh, if, you, if you want to send me an email about that, that would be very nice. And thank you. Okay. Any more? There's a question here. Yeah. Very, very um, lovely to hear you. Um, I just wonder, could you perhaps explain a bit better why Pontecorvo was subject to house arrest on ah. his arrival in, in Russia? And that went on for a long time. A very good question. Um, a former head of MI5 said to me, it sounds like they didn't trust him. And then, of course, the question was, why? And that I can't answer. I mean, one has to factor in many things. Uh, the Soviet Union was extremely paranoid in those days. Stalin didn't die until 1953. Um, however way you play it, if indeed he went for the reasons he said, which was for purely idealistic reasons, they would be suspicious. I mean, one way you could say, it's like the, the converted paranoia. Is he a British agent that's being dumped on us? No. On the other hand, if, as I feel circumstantially, he had been involved in espionage at whatever low level during his time uh, at Chalk River, and then had stopped and wanted to be out, that that is unforgivable. And in fact, uh, his colleague, Skinner, the man who went to Liverpool and uh, commented to MI5, that his theory was that Ponty was always going to the Canadian border, um, that he thought he had probably done something wrong during his time in Canada, and then had tried to get out, and that you cannot do. Um, so uh, for that reason, if you like, he was sort of punished, in, in quotes. I do have a theory as to why it was that they decided to announce his presence there in 1955, and that was because the Khrushchev era had begun, and the Atoms for Peace conference was going to take place in Geneva. And I think it was probably good strategic politics to use Pontecorvo as a pawn and present, you know, here's Pontecorvo, here he is, and he then stands up in this press conference and makes this announcement, I've always worked for peace, I've never worked on atomic weapons or anything like that, unlike my colleagues in the West, which, as I say in the book quite clearly, one can actually go back during 1950 while he was still at Harwell, the hydrogen bomb had been announced and the scientists were already getting very nervous about it and the beginnings of CND and Atomic Sci uh, Scientists Against the War and Pugwash was beginning. And lots of famous names like Piles and Blackett and others were all very prominently making remarks about the use and misuse of atomic know-how 
and Pontecorvo was distinctly absent from that. So it was a bit rich for him to turn around and claim to the different. But I think it was a tactical move in 1955 because of the Atoms for Peace conference. But the reasons why he was kept under wraps for five years, well, I speculate in the book, uh, in part from comments that have been made by a couple of people who I wasn't able to, to identify. But if indeed it's the case that he was questioned in the Kremlin closely about, in particular, were any questions asked about the Cohens. Had MI5 raised any questions at all about the Cohens' contact with Pontecorvo, what the KGB were really interested in is, are the Cohens in the clear? And once they were satisfied they were in the clear, they were then exported out to Britain, and they were now out of the way. or lead theremin, because um, theremin was, was banged away for a long period of time. I, I don't know this person, but it is yeah. said, there's certainly a lot of examples of this. Um, I mean, Burgess and Maclean and Philby himself, they, they were not regarded as heroes. It's very strange. I mean, I, but I, I can't explain the thinking of that, uh, that era then. Okay, I just w w w wanted just to uh, make a, a, a comment and invite, invite you to re reply, uh, uh, Frank. Um, there are some uh, scientists, Soviet scientists, who did extremely well and who we remember as being totally brilliant. People like Landau, mm -hmm. Igor Tam, Peter Kapitza. Uh, and I, 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 one after I read your book, I, I couldn't help wondering what would happen if someone like yourself, uh, armed with um, a legion of helpers, could go in to look at those, not just the Soviet security archives, but the archives of Tam and Kapitza. Right, because I suspect there's a great deal more to be discovered about the, this story if we had access to, uh, to that, ma that material. I don't know whether you want to comment on that. Yes, I mean, there was this period of about 18 months when Yeltsin first came in and the KGB archives were opened up. And that was when the story of Ted Hall got revealed. Um, Joe Albright, who was the former husband of Madeleine Albright, uh, was a correspondent in Moscow at the time. Mm. And he wrote a book called Bombshell, and it was all about Ted Hall that he realised that the identity of Malad was Ted Hall, and that this was going to come out. And so he found that Ted Hall was now a scientist living in Cambridge and basically said, look, let us write your story the way you want it to be told because you're going to be worked over otherwise, uh, and he did. Uh, Ted Hall died in 1999. His widow is still there, and I had fascinating talks yeah, exactly. with her. And as I mentioned in the book, I talked to her because I wanted to get a sense of what it would be like to be the wife of somebody who had passed information and how you react when you have to make the decision. If you're about to be exposed, do you willingly go to the Soviet Union or not? And she said, like hell, sure you would if the alternative was the electric chair. <laughs> and I never thought in my life I'd have a serious conversation with somebody like that. Make this the last question, the if last I may. One just one yeah. gentleman here, just the last question, yeah. Hi, thank you. Uh, was there anything in the uh, Matrokin archives, or I'm probably going to get his name wrong, um, Oleg Pichenko, who ran uh, Phil B and the other Cambridge uh, Five members and possibly everyone else who was operating in the UK at the time? Uh, well, the Metrokian archives are interesting and uh, Christopher... I, confess I, haven't read all of them. I only got through the, the first I'll, I'll half confess, the nor have I, they're this thick. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but Christopher Andrew has written a book about... Well, I think he was one of the co-authors uh, of yes. that book. And Oleg Gordievsky, is that the person that you were referring to? Yes. Yes, okay. Yes, indeed. Uh, Oleg Gordievsky is a person that I had some contact with while researching this. And I, I won't say any more here, but I will let you... He would know. He would know. Is that a question or a statement? Well, he would know. He would Take know? Take it how you wish. <laughs> well, OK, let me then say what I, I say, which is that um, Gordievsky <coughs> does not have first-hand knowledge. I mean, Gordievsky 
asserts that Pontecorvo was one of the most valuable agents for the KGB during the war. He, however, does not know that at first hand. He, his superiors told him that fact, and then when he defected and came over here, he brought that fact with him in his head. I'm not saying that that means that it is wrong. I'm just saying there are any number of possibilities of Chinese whispers along the way. I mean, it's possible it could even have been somebody else. You know, that, so um, it is anecdotal evidence, which, if ever those KGB archives are opened, one might be able to find substantial uh, backup of. Um, so that's the caveat that I would just leave on that. Okay. All right. Let's let's leave it there. Uh, Frank has graciously agreed to uh, sign. Uh, copies of his, his book. There'll be collector's items one day, of course. Um, no four-letter words, Frank, please, in the, um, uh, in the dedication. Uh, but no, it's a, a, great, a great talk about a, uh, a, a topic that, that, uh, on which uh, Frank has shed a, a good deal of light. I think it's been a fascinating uh, evening for all of us here. So may I ask you to join me in thanking Professor Frank Close. <laughs>